0: I want to start off today by um, telling you a story about a man named Gordon Hempton. For the past 37 years, he has traveled around the world as an acoustic ecologist, which I think is such a cool um, job title. Like, imagine introducing yourself. Hi, I'm Gordon, and I'm an acoustic ecologist. Um, He doesn't do this alone. He travels with... Fritz, who you can see on the screen. Fritz is a German-made head with microphones in the ears, and he's designed um, to replicate human hearing. Basically, he travels around the world like this, with a head on a stick, or tripod in this case, um, doing several things. He records soundscapes in various locations around the world, from beaches to deserts to rainforests to city sounds. And it started when he was on a long road trip across the U.S. And he ended up sleeping in his car overnight on a rural back road um, in in a thunderstorm. And he said he laid awake all night listening to the sound of the storm and the sounds of nature around him. He pondered how he could have made it to 27 years old and never properly listened to a storm before. To the thunder, to the rain, to the sounds of nature as... It adapted to the water falling. Um, This led him to begin traveling around and attempting to record what he calls experiences of silence. Now, obviously, um, it's not real, really science, as in full absence of sound, because that would be impossible to record. Um, But it's the sound, natural sounds of nature without any man-made noise to disrupt it. Uh, You can actually hear him on Spotify. I listened to several of his soundscapes while writing this talk. Um, It's very calming, very peaceful. Some of them are truly stunning, and they're experiences that you wouldn't be able to get unless you were actually in those places. Those experiences of seeking those beautiful soundscapes led to the second part of his career because it became increasingly difficult for him to find those experiences of silence. More and more, there began to be man-made noise in every place he went to record, which sent him in search of the quietest place in the world. And uh, that took him to a part of the Olympic National Park in Washington, United States, a park called the Ho Rain Forest. And there he placed a tiny red stone on a log and declared it to be the quietest place in the U.S. and one of the quietest places in the world but it wasn't enough for him just to find that place. He didn't stop there. He then went on to defend it as a space that could offer those experiences of silence to anyone who visited. He and Fritz would go trekking in the park on random days, seeking out any noises that disrupted the peace and he would follow it to the source of the noise and he would speak to people or he would write letters asking for compliance to save the quiet space. And in a lot of cases, it worked. He even had American Airlines and other massive airline um, companies promising to not fly over the park unnecessarily in order to protect the peace. He defended that space. The more that he did that, though, he realized that there were so many spaces out there that needed this kind of proaction and protection. So he began... um, What's known as the One Square Inch of Silence Project, which then turned into a a massive organization called um, Quiet Parks International, which still operates globally today. And on their website, it says that they are a charity committed to saving quiet for the benefit of all life. And it all comes back to Gordon Hempton and Fritz and Hempton's idea and belief that when we save quiet, we save everything else. And this is what I want to talk about today because what Hempton knew and spent his life and his career protecting is something that science has been proving for years and something that we feel down to our souls, that too much noise is toxic to our lives and lays waste to our ability to connect with the world around us, to connect to ourselves, with others, and especially our ability to connect with God to the depth that we were designed to. Although Hempton's work was entirely in the realm of auditory noise, there is other noise in our lives that we have to seek to quiet. And the answer can be found in silence, the absence of noise. Andrew Sullivan is a well-known author on what he has called distraction sickness in a world of digital noise. He wrote an article for the New York Times titled, I Used to Be a Human Being, which I think that's a fab title. Um, In it, he says this, he says, the reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. There are books to read, landscapes to be walked, friends to be with, life to be fully lived. This new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shapeshift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might forget we have any. So first I want to talk about and focus on the many different areas where noise is an issue for us. Firstly, it weakens us. It affects our health in very measurable ways, and it makes us sick in its own way. The very word noise has two possible derivatives from the Latin language. Um, usually when I talk, I end up giving a background to a word because I find it so interesting to talk about how language developed. But um, yeah, there's two possible derivatives that, that experts debate over, and neither of them are good options. Um, according to some, the word noise derives from the Latin word nausea, which is no different, was no different thousands of years ago for them um, as to what it is for us. Uh, It's literal translation is seasickness, but it's also been translated as disgust, annoyance, and discomfort. The other option argued for is that noise is derived from the Latin word noxia, meaning to hurt, to injure, damage. It's often also linked with the word toxic. So, again, I'll just say those. Disgust, annoyance, annoyance. Discomfort, hurt, injury, damage, toxic. These words come from the same root as the uh, the word noise, which is something that we experience every second of every day of our lives. It's no wonder then that increased levels of noise have been scientifically linked to increased occurrences of stress, anxiety, chronic fatigue, heart disease, Noise triggers a stress response in the amygdala in our brains, which releases co- cortisol, the hormone that is responsible for our fight or flight response. On the flip side, increased time in silence has been shown to help lower blood pressure, facilitate the development of new brain cells, decrease measurable stress levels, and even can help prevent blocking um, blockages forming in the arteries, increasing blood flow from the heart to the rest of your body. These are no small or insignificant things when it comes to health and taking care of our bodies. The second thing that noise does is it controls us, and we become addicted to it. Often without us even knowing it, which is the scary thing. It can affect our decision-making and our actions. It becomes something that we crave, and this is something that is well-known in most industries, and not just known, but used at our expense. For instance, um, restaurants often play music uncomfortably loudly. If you're like me, before I did research for this, I would have thought, oh, it's just because it's the vibe Um, or the ambience, I don't know. But more often than not, it's because those restaurants and bars know That by playing loud music, they get higher turnover because people don't want to sit there because they can't connect with the person right in front of them. They can't have deep conversations, so they move on more quickly. So the louder the music, the more their profits go up, and they use that against us. When shopping, shops use music to affect what we buy. Faster tempo songs can lead to more impulsive decisions. Songs that you're more familiar with, um, they found that that seems to make time go quicker, so you're more likely to spend more time shopping and then end up with more things in your trolley. So those are just a couple of ways that noise is being used to control us. Um, And and tech companies know how to distract and addict us so much that 77% of young adults answered yes when asked, when nothing else is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. I definitely fall into that 77%. I almost feel like it's probably higher now. I feel like it like increasingly goes up since they did that study, which I don't actually know when that was. Um, but that's a high statistic. It's often thoughtless, and it's being used against us to control us, and often we let it. Jefferson Bethke says this in his book, To Hell with the Hustle. He says... The media's culture of noise is like giving someone meth or cocaine. Strong wording, I know, but he says it overstimulates, lies to your senses, and then something in you weirdly craves it again, even though before you experienced it, you never realized that you desired it. The only way to fight something like that is with the anchored, deep, slow presence of silence. And the third and final thing is that noise distracts and disconnects us. And this is the one that I personally feel is the most harmful. The constant noise of our lives keeps us from focusing on the things that actually matter. We're so busy being overwhelmed by the options of things to do, people to see, songs to listen to, the never-ending Netflix queue to make our way through, books to read, texts, emails to answer we forget to check in with ourselves, we forget to check in with others. We become disconnected from our own emotions, from the pain we've experienced, from the overwhelm that we feel. And let me be clear, up until now, I've spoken as if noise is something that happens to us, but this especially is where we're often complicit in the damage that noise has on us. Sometimes we'd rather not feel it, all those things, so we often allow ourselves to be distracted, to seek other things, to disconnect from the things that really matter, from the fear that if we stop long enough, if we don't keep ourselves distracted, we'll realize that the pain that we've shoved down is still there. That in the silence, there is isol- isolation and that we're alone. In celebration of discipline, Richard Foster says our fear of being alone drives us to noise and crowds. We keep up a constant stream of words, even if they are inane. We buy radios that strap to our wrists or fit over our ears so that if no one else is around, at least we are not condemned to silence. How are we all doing? (laughs) I feel like I painted a pretty bleak picture there. (laughs) Um, No, but the good thing is, and as so often happens, that there is an answer to this despair of noise that we feel. And we find it in the life of Jesus, as we so often do. Although it would have looked a lot different for Jesus in a non-digital world, there was still a lot of noise for him. He was in constant demand as a teacher, a healer, a miracle worker, and a source of curiosity. He had to actively seek time and space away from the noise. Time in what has become known as the spiritual disciplines of silence and solitude. This is a rhythm of life that we see time and time again from him. He begins his time of ministry with being baptized and then immediately retreating into the desert for 40 days. Then he's back for just a day before he's seeking out silence and solitude again. In Luke 5, um, there's a story, lots of stories about Jesus teaching and healing. And then in verse 15 to 16, it says this. The news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. There's so much to do, so much busyness, so much noise, so many people to see, so many things to say to them. But he still found the value in withdrawing to the lonely places to pray. In Mark 6, after the apostles had been sent out, Um, It says this, it says, they gathered around Jesus and reported to him all the things that they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. They were so busy, they didn't have a chance to eat. And his response wasn't, let's go get you food. His response was, let's go to a quiet place. Let's go seek out silence and solitude. And his last act before being arrested and taken to die on the cross, hands down the most difficult thing he was to face in his time on earth was to seek out silence and solitude in the garden of Gethsemane. Matthew twenty six thirty six to 46 says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So he's in this place of sorrow and depth, and still he chooses to retreat, not distract himself. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. He knew when he was going to be taken, and his choice of how to spend his last night before his arrest was to get away to the quiet place and be with God without the noise. Because he knew that where noise weakens and sickens us, silence and solitude is a place of strength and healing. Where noise controls and addicts us, silence and solitude gives us freedom and hope. And where noise distracts and disconnects us, silence and solitude connect us to God and help us to know our purpose. That was the way it was for Jesus, and that's the way it can be for us. So if there is a clear problem here in our own lives— and a clear answer that we see in the life of Jesus. Why do we struggle to maintain this rhythm of retreating to quiet places? Because it is hard, it's something I I very much struggle with. And first, I think we have to realize that our aversion to silence and solitude is normal. We've been programmed to accept the noise and seeking out silence and solitude is like a fish swimming swimming upstream against the current recognizing our aversion to it, that can be the first step to powering through the uncomfortability of it. Even in the garden of Gethsemane, the disciples were with Jesus and struggled to engage in that level of silence and solitude. But it was important enough that Jesus kept waking them up and encouraging them to engage. We have to wake up. And I just want to pause here for something that I've been pondering for myself, and I wonder if it might be true for you as well. Um, when, when COVID hit and we went into lockdown, at first I found it really refreshing to have that space, to have a lot more freedom, to have silence and solitude. It seemed easier to seek it, um, but as the lockdowns dragged on seemingly without an end, um, for me, it quickly turned away from feeling like silence and solitude and into feeling isolated. Solitude is something that we have to seek for ourselves, but isolation is something that was forced on us all. And as we process how we've been changed by those years of lockdown, I think it's important to recognize the difference between solitude and isolation because, while they might seem like similar ideas, they're very different. John Mark Comer phrases it like this in The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He says, by solitude, I don't mean isolation. The two are worlds apart. Solitude is engagement. Isolation is escape. Solitude is safety. Isolation is danger. Solitude is how you open yourself up to God. Isolation is painting a target on your back for the tempter. Solitude is when you set aside time to feed and water and nourish your soul, to let it grow into health and maturity. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the former. And solitude, as somber as it sounds, is anything but loneliness. Richard Foster says this in his chapter on solitude and and celebration of discipline. He says, loneliness and clatter are not our only options. We can cultivate an inner solitude and silence that sets us free from loneliness and fear. Loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. Solitude is more a state of mind and heart than it is a place. There is a solitude of the heart that can be maintained at all times. Crowds or lack of them have little to do with this inner attentiveness, but if we possess inward solitude, we do not fear being alone, for we know, we know that we are not alone, neither do we fear being with others, for they do not control us. In the midst of noise and confusion, we are settled into a deep inner silence, whether alone or among people, we always carry with us a portable sanctuary of the heart. I love that portable sanctuary of the heart. That solitude, that place where we can choose to be alone, that's perhaps the greatest reminder that we are never actually truly alone. So we have to recognize that our struggle with silence and solitude is normal, especially our aversion um, to anything that kind of resembles isolation or loneliness. But we also have to realize that time with God and silence and solitude is something that Satan desperately wants to keep us from, which I think is a sign in itself of how important it is. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote an amazing book that's so twisted called Screwtape Letters. And it's twisted because it's the view, from the view of an older, wiser demon speaking to his younger nephew who's just begun his journey of, um, of waylaying his patient um, from a life of faith in God. And in Screwtape Letters, he puts it in this backwards way, speaking as a demon. He says, music and silence, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time have been surrendered to either of those abominable forces. But all has been occupied by noise. Noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile. Noise, which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. We will make the whole world a... We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We have already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end, but I admit we are not yet loud enough or anything like it. Research is in progress. There are very real forces that want to keep us from time with God, and noise is one of their greatest weapons. So we have to actively seek the silence and the solitude. And finally, we have to acknowledge that although it can be restful, silence and solitude is not always a fun self-care spa day for your soul, Um, but rather it's a deep and vulnerable and cleansing place where we come to be laid bare before God, to come with all of our vulnerabilities and to come in authenticity before God. Henry Nouwen said this from his own experience with silence and solitude. Solitude is not a private therapeutic place, rather it is a place of conversion. A place where the old self dies and the new self is born. He goes on to say that silence is such a force because it's truly one of the only places we are laid bare before ourselves and before God. Silence and solitude is a place where we bring him our nothingness, our failings, our fears, our loneliness, heartbreak and wounds, and we walk away with his vision, his strength, his love, his compassion for ourselves and for others. This quiet place is where God speaks tenderly to us and where we can learn to hear his voice amid and above the noise that bombards us. Where we can, as Ephesians puts it, lay down our old selves and be renewed to put on our old selves, our new selves according to God's likeness of righteousness and purity of heart. So that we can be more powerful advocates for the things that truly matter. So that we can love people with all of the compassion and acceptance that we receive from God in the quiet place. So that we can be part of bringing his kingdom to earth. So that we can seek his will be done rather than our own like Jesus prayed in the garden. So that our authority to name the things of heaven over the sickness and brokenness around us, is rooted in our deep abiding with our good and kind Father in the quiet place. It's how we get to the place of stepping up and stepping out, like we've been talking about this month. None of these things happen apart from Him, and it all starts with the quiet places in silence and solitude. So I want to bring us back to where we started with the story of Hempton and Fritz. And I believe, like Hempton, we have to actively seek out the silence. We have to seek out the spaces where we can go to get away from the noise. We have to chase it. And contrary to Hempton, I don't just mean the external noises, the audible noises that can be measured in Fritz's microphoned ears. John Mark Comer makes the distinction between internal and external noise by saying external noise is easy to quiet. Just turn off your phone, power down the stereo, lie on your couch or walk to the park or book a night in a cabin close by, or maybe even a monastery, that's easy. But the internal noise, that's a whole other animal. A wild beast in desperate need of taming. There is no off switch. We have to seek that silence in an internal way. And that's why this is a spiritual practice, because it takes practice. It takes trying, and it takes failing, and that's okay. But like Hempton, when we find those quiet spaces... We have to defend them. The same way that he trekked out into the forest to find those sources of disruption, we have to do that in our own lives. We are not slaves to the noise or to anything else in the world, and we don't have to accept it as the only way of life. In the same way that he chased those noise down, we need to track and locate the sources of noise and disruption, keeping us from a deep, abiding relationship with God. And we have to ask for compliance or demand it if we need to even from ourselves. We have to find the quiet places in our lives and defend them. I think that we should start right now. (laughs) So we're gonna do something a bit different as we end today. The band's not gonna come back up. We're not gonna have another song. We're gonna end in silence. And um, I know it's gonna be uncomfortable (laughs) for a lot of us. It's gonna be uncomfortable for me, that's okay. Um, this is where we start and how we start. We just take it one step at a time. Um, so we're going to spend the next at least five minutes, um, in silence. Now there's going to be noise on the street. There's going to be probably yells from the kids. There's going to be noise and that's okay. That's the external noise. I would love if what we focus on is that internal noise to seek, to quiet it, to seek God's face, to seek what it looks like to sit with him and and seek what he wants us to know, what he wants us to hear, what he wants us to see. Um, yeah, so if you want to stay where you're sat, that's fine. If you want to stand, if you want to kneel, if you want to walk, if you want um, there's space on the blue carpet to go lay down, Um, maybe just don't fall asleep because that's counterproductive and that's like the Garden of Gethsemane all over again. Um, But yeah, we're going to start now with silence.
1: Psalm 30, 131 reads like this. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, people of God, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Before we land our time, I just want you to see how does your soul feel now? You'll have probably spotted some things which rush to the surface of your mind. The busy stuff and the distracting thoughts. Sometimes it's quite helpful to see what's there. I think what often happens is actually is that you sort of push through that. Actually, a sort of stillness starts to come. And like a weaned weaned child with his mother, who isn't dominated by pushing his appetites anymore, but is content to sit and be with the Father, starts to grow within you. And just as we land our time, I want you to just um, finish our time of silence, which is actually just over five minutes, which to me went surprisingly quickly. (laughs) Um, by just thinking and asking the question what might this practice look like for you in the week to come to something you want to put in place that would look to dispel the competing noises of the world around you and would counter them with the peace of his kingdom and a soul that is still find what that might look like in your life And if it's right for you, you might just want to say to the Lord, this is what I'm going to shoot for this week. Help me do it.